Here we go. Class two. All right. Didn't make it in. Didn't get washed away. Almost. Not sure whether I'll make it home, but we'll see. It's really cold in here today, isn't it? Yes. What is going on? Well, at least it'll keep you all awake, right? Isn't that the... I think that's part of the master plan here. We crank down the air conditioning, make it cold. All right, here's what we're going to do today. Hinman, uh, it's good. You know, we're one day in, we're only about half a day behind. So um, <laughs> we're doing great. Uh, but actually, it's fine. We'll go slow in the beginning uh, and move faster a little later. So we'll do Hinman today, talk about the, the property theory stuff, uh, and Hendricks, uh, and then get into some coast theory. Uh, uh, and they uh, towards the end of class. And if we don't get it all done today, that's just fine. Um, on. Um, all right, so I forgot to mention yesterday lunches and or coffees. That's a fine tradition. You've probably been told by many of your other uh, professors at the law school to uh, uh, come with us to lunch and coffee at some point during the semester. Uh, let's do it. Um, I'll send a link by email. I probably won't post the scheduling link on the blog because a lot of people read the blog who aren't in the class, and I like them, but I don't want to meet with all of them. So, um, so I will send you a, a link uh, to your email and just get a group together of three or four or something and, and, uh, and choose some times, and we'll do that. All right? Um, don't wait till the end. Things get busier towards the end. Uh, what else? Any other? There's something else I wanted to mention. Maybe not. Any other administrative or other questions? Everybody good? All right. Posted some more readings for next week. Okay. Keep breathing. All right. Then. Yes, particularly next Thursday. It may look tough, but it won't be so tough. Uh, and... Uh, and I don't know if the book's coming or not. I get different messages from the bookstore, so I posted uh, all of Chapter 1 uh, on, the, on the site, or at least the link to it. It's actually on the site for the book. Uh, so that should get you through at least, certainly next week and probably beyond. All right? All right, on we go. All right, so we ended up yesterday talking about Hinman. Uh, Hinman, of course, is the case uh, with the unfortunate landowner who has... Uh, the predecessor of United Airlines uh, flying over their land at a height of a less, less than 100 feet, right? Uh, and so Hinman uh, says what? Who's up first today? Lauren Saitel. Saitel? Saitel, yes. Lauren. So Lauren, what is, what is, well, no, we know the facts. There, there's an airplane flying over my land at 100 feet high. I don't like it. So they sue, like any good American, and what do they allege? Um, that the, um, pardon me, the plaintiff alleged that the airspace above his property is his property, thus the plaintiff is not Exactly, right? Says this is just jock, the same deal, right? You are intentionally flying through my property. My property... Uh, uh, it includes the airspace above my land, therefore, trespass, end of story, give me the money, right? All right, what's the theory upon which they say you can't fly over their land? The, um, yep, good, right? And what is that, what's that rule or theory mean? That 
Exactly. Exactly. Right. So this is a traditional rule of property. Uh, they say, which, which is that you know the landowner, the person who owns the green stuff here, owns everything else. Right. From from uh, the sky, from the heavens, all the way to the center of the earth. Right. And that's how we we designate uh, the property limits. All right. All right. So so. Lauren, we have a bit of a problem here, right? What's the problem that the court is faced with? Um, or is it not a problem? Why not just rule with Jacques? I mean, it should be simple, right, if right. they do it that way. Well, the defendant is contending that this atom is not held in California and that uh, landowners do not have property rights over the airspace of that. Good. Right, so the dispute is whether or not this rule is going to hold in California. But what's the problem, right? Why not just follow sort of the Jacques case that we did yesterday and say, look, it's an intentional trespass. They own the land. There's, a, you know, certainly they have this at least some authority that they own the airspace. It's easy, right? Why is that? Why would that be a problem? Sure. Why is it a problem? I mean, the court. The court seems to. Figure, have to try and figure out a way to get out of that, right? right. Why? Let's just from a policy perspective. What's the what's the problem here? The problem is where we arrived. I mean, okay, maybe. Uh, but why? What's the? I mean, what is the? They can't possibly rule necessarily. Do you think in favor of the uh, landowner here? No. I mean, the argument that they seem to give is that this idea kind of came about before planes. Good. The space, right. You know, a reasonable amount of space above your head, and so. Good. Now it would just be ridiculous. Ridiculous, right? Exactly. So they have to do something about that, right? I mean, so here's a court presented with a problem, which is, all right, the the ad column rule worked fine as long as what we were talking about was, you know, me putting a stick over my neighbor's yard or something, right? And that yeah. seems like okay. We can deal with that or building my house over, over my neighbor's yard. But when we're talking about planes, satellites, I mean, this is a whole different ball game, and we can't do that anymore. So what do you do as a court? It's not in the book. Just what do you do? I mean, as a judge, what are you going to do when you're presented with this? You're presented with this case. What do you do? You have to come up with a new rule that would allow you to Exactly, right? You have to figure out a way, essentially, out from underneath this traditional rule, right? And yet, you don't want to do what? What's the sort of other problem you might be presented with? Um, you don't want to be infringing upon property rights or not giving credit to... Or whatever, right? You don't want to go too far and make it so that the, you know, any value of the property is significantly diminished, right? So you have to figure out how are you going to define this set of rights in a way that makes sense in light of modern conveniences like air travel and yet still upholds as much as possible what we were talking about yesterday with respect to the, the sort of, you know, importance of private property, right? All right, and so what do they say? Necessary convenience to the enjoyment of the land, which is almost kind of 
logic circularly, circularly in that whatever land he can actually prove that he's making necessary and convenient, convenient use of or enjoying is the airspace that he has. <coughs> Good. Right. So they, they do. They say, all right. So it's not truly this, the ad kellum rule in the sense that you get everything, but you do get something, and what do you get? You get as much as you need to use for your own enjoyment or are using for your own enjoyment, right? All right, what do you think? Is that a reasonable way to draw the line? I mean, it certainly gets United Airlines off the hook here, right, because they weren't doing anything. Um, I, I actually would say so. Okay. I think that they mentioned something about, you know, that there are obviously different codes, which would, I mean, if you want to look at it on the fact of the property owners being annoying or a nuisance, I don't know they use that, you know, they have reasons why you can't build certain things in certain places, so that would kind of help take care of some other problems that might arise. And also, he's arguing about, like, say it's a noise complaint issue or something. I know there's, like, I don't know. If yeah, all right, so let me stop you what you just said, which is, so what are the what are the incentives that this is going to create for you know the um, uh, uh, the property owners of the world? Right after this rule comes down, then what are you going to do if you're a property owner? To find new and use as much of the All right. So what would you do? Anybody have ideas? What would you do? Build a skyscraper on your property. Good. Skyscrapers are costly though. What would you do? Big giant pole, right? Something like that. So what do you think? Is that okay? Sure, we have zoning rules, which might prevent me from doing these things, but those, of course, are a monstrous infringement on my property rights, too, right? I mean, if I want a giant pole in my yard, I should be allowed to have it, right? I mean, Mr. Jock will certainly say I can do whatever I want, right? Yeah. So I'm considering right now whether that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, so you think that this is okay, the way they define the rights? It's going to create incentives for people to do things like build skyscrapers if they can or if they can't to build poles, which then is going to require the society to respond by instituting a bunch of regulatory regimes to keep people from nearby airports, which is what we do, from building things that are tall. Right? right? So now our nice, clean Jacques rule, which is you can do whatever you want on your property, get off my lawn, is now, well, you can do most things you want on your property as long as it doesn't infringe all of these other things that might be important to society. Yeah. Right? What do you think? Is that all right? I mean, it is what it is, right? It seems so. Is it, is it so often with things now that it really seems like, you know, because... Oh, you can't build, you know, I mean, there's right. very strict zoning rules, particularly around airports, right? You definitely know poles on your, on your <laughs> land near an airport. Um, those sorts of things. I mean, the zone, we'll get into zoning. There's a lot, a lot of rules. A lot of rules. I might, do you mean that if something like that was instated after you purchased your property, it's an infringement on your property? It might be, right? Yeah. It might be. We'll, we'll cover a couple cases like that, right? Even when, when the county rezones your property and makes it so you can't build the skyscraper you'd always dreamed of uh, on your home, as your home, uh, is that... You know, they owe you some money for doing that because they infringe your rights. I mean, those are the sort of things to think of. I mean, 
The reason that this case is sort of in the case book right after Jacques is it shows you how, you know, we start with Jacques, which is nice and clean, right? You have this piece of property, crotchety old guy says, you know, I don't want anybody on my lawn, get off my lawn. And we say, yeah, he's irrational perhaps and maybe a jerk or whatever, but we're going to let him do that because we think that property is so fundamentally important, right, for the variety of reasons we talked about yesterday. And then, you know, two pages later, we sort of say, ah, not really, right? And the way the court did this is a little bit interesting, which is they say, you know, this was never really the law. They sort of wave their hands at this. How many people believe that it was never the law? You really believe it was never the law? Mineral rights almost always go to the landowner over the top. Really? Yeah, almost always. Not, not uniformly always, but almost always. Now, they can be separately sold, right? So sometimes they may be owned by somebody different, but, you know, the default condition is usually that you own everything below, unless there's some other overriding regime. It could have been a law, but it's... Good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you say, so you're not buying the court saying this was never, I mean, the court says this was never the law. Yeah. I mean, this sort of seems like. It's based off of the word dominion, uh, and to have dominion over the sky, which, which goes back to what he's saying, which is an archaic uh, idea that you can't have, you know, because it's the heavens or whatever. Sure. Um, but. Right. I mean, it, I'm not saying they don't find sort of a reason for this, but it seems like they're definitely stretching a little bit. They find a reason to say, you know, I don't know what you thought, but really, you never did own this, right? It's very convenient, by the way, for them to say you never did own the space over your land, right? Why is that important? Exactly, right? So the Constitution of the United States protects takings of property, right? And it's actually a very interesting legal issue as to whether or not judicial um, uh, decisions can take property, can remove property without payment. Um, certainly if a municipality did it, they might have to owe you money. And so by saying you never had this right, they don't have to worry about that. They don't have to go down the road of the takings, right? We'll get into takings later in the course as well. But just note that these are ways that judges um, and lawyers sort of work with cases work with fact patterns uh, and their ability to get uh, to the answer that they want, right? All right, so we have to modify the rule. And, and which, which modification do they use, right? They say, all right, it never really was. The strict version of ad quellum was never the, the law, but we're going to give you some other version of it, and why, right? So we already know what the version is. It's you can only have as much, you know, what we call your property is only as much as you can actually physically occupy, use, and enjoy, right? What's the theory here? What's the theory? Okay, 
Good. So, well, that's that's sort of the impractical result that would happen if we didn't have this. And you're absolutely right, right? It would be essentially it would bring sort of aircraft travel to a standstill because it would be almost impossible to assemble all these sorts of rights. But why is it that that we want? So that's why we want to avoid this case, right? So is it? But do we want to redefine property rights for that reason, or is there a, sort of a, a better theory we can come up with why this might be the case? Yes. Uh, we want to avo avoid um, use of the airspace by others injurious to the land or constitutes an actual interference with possession or benefit. Well, that's the rule, right, as Lauren suggests. That's what they actually say is that going to be the, the new rule, or maybe not a new rule. They say this is the traditional rule, right? But what's the underlying theory here for why? Lauren, you want to try again? Uh, sure. Uh, well, they tend to say that Um, property must have been retained for the general mass of the earth, and it must be capable of rights and services of possession without possession. No right, and it can be maintained. Good. So, exactly. So, right, theory number one, right? You can only truly possess land in a trespass sense, right? You're only eligible for trespass over land that you can physically occupy. And therefore, we can't give you the full ad column rule because you can't physically occupy everything. You can only physically occupy the parts that we said you could, which is that which you can actually take physical possession of. All right? All right. Good theory. How's it work with Jacques, though? Did Jacques physically occupy that corner of the land that they dragged the, the uh, motorhome across? Um, Mobile home? It must be capable by its own service Good. Could have if he wanted to. Sort of like here, if he did have a skyscraper, he could have. Yeah. No, I'm not seeing the distinction here. But or I'm not seeing the. Anybody want to try? Why is it? Why do you think it fits? Um, because you can't protect anything that the defined specified. So you would say that this theory would require Jacques to come out the other direction? No, I'm saying that like if already like the airspace is um, like completely unused and has never been attempted to use, where the the land is its physical boundaries and is allowed to be enclosed. Okay. All right. I mean, maybe maybe that's sort of a modification though of the theory. I'm not sure. Yep. Um, I sort of. Even though he wasn't currently using it at the time. Right. Versus air, which is not physically tangible. Okay. I can't just say this is fine, right? Right, but that's what he would do if he built a bigger building, which the theory would suggest he's allowed to do, and, right? And if he does do that, I think to a certain extent, that building that occupies that space okay. is his. All right, so you can convert, essentially, the air into physical property by building a structure around. All right, all right, maybe that's a way of making these things mesh together. Any other ideas? Can I try this? Yeah. Well, property as something that, uh, the case that you can cause injury to. Okay. Uh, so in the Jacques case, uh, that land, 
trespassing on it, you alter it in some way that might be considered an injury. Although remember, in that case, the court explicitly said we don't need to see any injury in order to impose damages. Right. Right? And they said explicitly, no injury required for trespass. Right? But he wasn't using it, right? What do you mean possession? Yeah, what do you mean by possession if I'm not actually using it? It's his land. Yeah, but it's my space. Right? I mean it's the same thing. I point to it, it's mine, isn't it? Yeah, but you're not above my this is mine, right? Everything <laughs> up is mine. The two square feet in front of you is yours. Right? So that's but that's the same thing. Just the same as I said. The corner of that desk over there is mine, right? The fact that it's on a flat surface doesn't strike me as particularly different than it, whether it was 20 feet in the air, right? I'm not there. I'm not physically sitting there. I could, in theory, if I wanted to, but I'm not. So is it trespass? Why is it trespass if you touch that, but not trespass if you touch my property 20 feet in the air? Uh, so if you're the air... Okay, that's another theory, right? That navigable airspace is, in a sense, public property, right? That once you get above airplane flight level, you know, whatever, we'll call it 100 feet, 200 feet, maybe 500 feet, then it is not, in fact, anyone's property. It's essentially public property that we can then allow people to use in essentially any way, almost like a public park or something like that, right? So what do you, that's another, that's a, a different kind of theory as to why this is the right rule. What do you think? Does that work better? Yeah, it certainly avoids the problem with Jacques, right? Because that we don't have any issues there because there's no public property issue um, uh, in Jacques, right? What's the downside of that, though? Any downside in that theory? You have to kind of cover at what point does the individual call it that public? Sure, yeah. There's a boundary problem. You have to figure out, is it... You know, is it 100 feet? Is it 500 feet? Another potential problem might be, did the landowner know when they purchased this land that, you know, they were only getting the first 100 feet, right? And if, if the expectations were different, do we owe them some money for a taking now, right? So those might be a couple of downsides. All right, there's at least, there's, so we've heard so far, I think, three theories here, right? One is, actual possession is required for trespass. This is something like what the court seems to use, Downside of that theory is it's pretty hard to reconcile that with the Jacques case, right? And you might be able to do it. We heard a couple of theories or a couple of ideas of how we could mesh those two things, but that's a bit of a stretch. Another one is that trespass is only available for actual harm, right? And that here, there was no really, no actual harm to anything. Nothing was physically damaged and therefore no trespass. Now, the problem with that is, is it just doesn't describe what trespass law is all about, right? That's the Jacques case. Stands for the idea that you don't need to show any actual harm in order to have trespass. So although that makes sense, it explains the result here, it doesn't really describe the realities of trespass law, right? A third one. There's one. A third one is the the airspace is public property one, right? And there's a fourth one. Anybody see the fourth one anywhere? It's actually not in the uh, in the case. Yes. Uh, the one that you see that's technically trespass, but uh, you can accept that because 
Exactly. Exactly, right? So this one, this theory attempts to not alter the traditional ad column rule at all. It says, all right, it's trespass. It is. To allow planes to fly over your property, but it's a compensated trespass. Right? And why? What do you what's the compensation? It's Rogers, right? Right. Yeah. That we all benefit from the fact that Exactly, right? Everybody. We all benefit greatly from the fact that airplane travel is possible, and therefore we are getting implicit compensation for the use of the land, a uh, use of our property above our land, right? So that would suggest that, in fact, if people were doing things that, that weren't sort of generally soci uh, to society's benefit, those might be called trespasses, right? So that's another theory. Again, not one that many courts have followed, right? Courts usually don't sort of go into the underlying theory. They tend to dance around it, but it's one way to, to um, think about it. Um, all right. So let's talk briefly. That's a good segue. This, these two cases that we did is a good segue into two views of property. And there were two short uh, excerpts from articles there, right? One is by Penner, one is by Tom Gray. And I'll just tell you about this, and, and we can sort of, because we're going to be talking about this sort of throughout the entire course, right? There's, what Penner says is property is special, and that the, what we mean by property is basically one thing, and this is the right to exclude people from your property, right? And if you don't have the right to exclude people, the right to keep people off, you don't have anything. Right? And that is what makes property different than every other kind of regulation. Is you have this sort of unfettered core right to exclude. Everything else builds from there. Right? The other theory uh, that, that Tom Gray writes about is what we call the bundle of sticks theory of property. Right? And the idea here is that property is just a collection of rights. Right? It's, a, it's a collection of rights that you hold when you own something. And it might be the right to use it. It might be the right to keep people off of it most of the time. It might be the right to, to, have, uh, to build what you want on it, except for when you can't because of zoning rules or other regulations. Right? All of these things. And so it's a bundle of sticks approach. And we can adjust that bundle of sticks, give and take different sticks in your bundle, as we see fit depending on particular circumstances. Right? So... You know, the, the right to exclude theory looks a lot like the Jacques case, where the court said, look, we know he wasn't right about uh, uh, the uh, adverse possession issue, and that maybe he wasn't being very nice, but it doesn't matter. You know, no harm, doesn't matter. It's a you know, sort of unfettered right to exclude. Hinman, on the other hand, looks a lot more like a bundle of sticks approach, where we're saying, all right, you have a lot of rights as a property owner, but what you don't have the right to do is stop airplanes from flying over your land, that, that stick is not in your bundle, right? We're going to take that, we either say you didn't, you didn't get it at all, which is what the court says, or we'll just take it away in a particular circumstance, right? Um, and so this is a, you know, a two different ways of viewing property. You know, in general, the more modern approach, and the approach you see more often in more modern cases is this bundle of sticks approach, uh, for reasons that we're going to understand uh, why throughout the course, um, often because the more um, absolutist formal version that, that Penner suggests 
gets very difficult for judges to enforce. It's, it would be very difficult for a judge to, you know, uphold the right to enjoin airplanes flying over your land. And you, we'll see some other cases like that, right? And the other way to sort of think about property is that the, the, the other distinguishing feature of property beyond sort of these two theories, right, is the that the property creates what we call in rem rights, right? And these are rights against a large and indefinite class. When I own property, I have a right to exclude everybody, right? I don't have to individually identify who it is that can't come on my land, right? Nobody can come on my land. I have a right against the world in that sense, right? Other kinds of rights are what we call in personam rights, right? And rights against a small and carefully defined class of people, right? What's an example of an in personam right? A classic example. How about Jeffrey Johnson? What do you think? A, a, a right that I have against a defined person or set of persons. So name of one of the four classes you're taking this semester. No. All right, you got 50-50 shot because it's not property. Yeah, it's a contract, right? Why? What is a contract? Contract is exactly that. It's a, it's a set of rights, a set of obligations, reciprocal obligations usually, with somebody specific. Right? Who? Well, whoever else is on the other side of the contract. Right? That's what we mean. So, but property is different, right? Property is, I have a right against everybody. Right? I don't have to sign a deal with you in order to keep you off my land, right? You just know that you can. Now we can now we can combine those two things and we can have deals that sort of sit on top of my property, right? So we'll talk about that in a minute. But just note that there's two different types of rights that are at at work here. Right? Um, okay. So, the unified theory, which is this right to exclude, does, does it work? Does it work for money? Money is sort of an interesting property theory, right? What's different about money? I mean, let's think about it in terms of jobs, right? So, what would have happened if instead of uh, plowing across the, the land in Jock, what we were doing was dealing with money, right? And that what Stallnacher wanted to do was give Jock $1,100 in exchange for Jock giving him back $1,000. Right? Think about it that way. Right? Still property, right? I'm saying to Jock, give me your $1,000, and I'm actually giving them, either giving him $1,000 or maybe even a little bit more. Right? Do you think he would have done, done that deal? Probably. Right? He probably would have at least done an even swap. There's no reason not to. But think about how differently you feel about the fact that it's land. Right? The fact that it's land, we can understand a little more that even though it, it might have been no harm to him, or maybe even if they had paid him a little money, he still wouldn't have gone for it. Right? But money is different. Right? So is it really right to say that you have a right to exclude people from your money? I mean, money's different. It's just paper. It's just sort of an idea, 
Stocks are the same way, right? Pieces of paper that give me a right to do something, and yet we call them property, but they don't feel quite the same. But wouldn't they kind of be like trespassing, be like stealing, so it's kind of like a right sure. to protect your money? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. We use a lot of the same concepts with money or with sort of other types of property. We're going to talk next week about intellectual property, right, which is, again, just the I, the ideas, right? Can ideas be a subject of property? But note how it feels. I mean, does it feel different to you than, than mean, real property, land? Only in the sense that money is like the one, one of the few things that we are all 100% sure we're getting the actual same thing back for, you know what I mean? Like, okay. if I had a ball of a certain, like made by a certain company, sure. someone wanted to give me the same brand new ball, I, that's Right, but do you have, I mean, do you think it's it's correct to say uh, I have property rights over the $20 bill in my pocket? Does that make sense? I mean, it makes sense in the, in the sense that I can't steal it from you, but if I said I'm going to take that from you and give you something of equal value, which is essentially the Jacques circumstance, is it Okay. And I just swap it, give you two tens? Is it, if I harmed you? Punitive damages? No? No? You can't swap my 20 for two tens without my consent because I don't want to carry two tens because I might drop one. So you're saying two tens are just inherently less valuable to you than, than a 20. Hello, Mr. Jacques, right? <laughs> Exactly. So therefore, they should be on the Okay. Proper. Well, sure. I mean, you're right. You can convert sort of these intangible assets into hard assets and back and forth, right? I mean, you can also swap property for property and things like that. It's one of the, the attributes. So, yes, even if you have these unusual types or different types of property, you can often convert them into real property. But one of the things, and that's just sort of what I'm trying to highlight here, is to think about it. I mean, do you feel like you have a autonomy interest in your money? Well, you might, right? Anybody else feel like they have an autonomy interest in your the cash, that the breaking the 20 would just feel violated by that in the way that dragging a motor, mobile home across your land might make you feel violated? Again, no harm. Okay, why? I mean, but that's, that sort of begs the question, why should I if, if there's no harm? Just because we say? Because it's your property. But that, that's what we're asking. That's the question, right? I mean, it feels different to me. Maybe it doesn't to you. I don't know. What do you think? Feel different? Yeah. I was going to respond to what she said. That sure. That when, you, when you deposit the $20 in the bank, they don't stay there. They're like minimum deposit levels. It's like the bank is actually... In effect, borrowing the money from you. And yeah, her answer would be, well, but she did it with her consent, right? I mean, me, I stuff everything in my mattress, but um, <laughs> you, know, you have your choice. You have a choice to do that, right? 
So the question is whether or not we should treat, I mean, we don't. In fact, we usually think of money just like regular property, which always seems a little funny to me since yesterday we talked about what are the core principles when you really boil it down. Why do we think property is so important to exclude everybody? And we talked about privacy and personhood and you feel like it's wrapped up in yourself. I, I, mean, I don't know about you, I don't feel that way about the $20 bill in my pocket. And I like money, right? But it's not that money that I care about. The number in the bank account is just the same to me, right? And I think probably to a lot of people. It might still be a cost to Jacques, though, because if they do drag it across his land, he's kind of got to monitor maybe what's going on. If they do cause damage, the onus is on him to bring the suit. Okay. So, sure. Right. So somebody comes up to me and says, "Hey, buddy, you got you know four five. You know, can I give you four fives for a twenty? I might say no for rational reasons, just because I don't feel like counting. Right? Counting, or if the person just walks <coughs> off, you know, depending on who right. switches first, they walk off. Right. And then you've got to go chase, chase them down. Right. Okay. Them. Good, yeah. So there are cases where there still might be harm. But again, I think we just showed that could be the same for each case, right? So, I don't know, what do you think? Does it feel the same? Money? Real property? Treat it the I same? No, I, I don't pretend that it's yeah. the same. Okay. All right, one more comment, and then we have to move on. Um, I also think you have to consider the fact that, like, the actual money you carry around doesn't actually have value. Like, it's such an abstraction that, like, if they were to say U.S. currency is no longer valid, you could have all your cash and it would literally mean nothing. Right. So like a gold and that may happen in 2013, <laughs> as it turns out. But. I think it's hard to consider it as a concrete property because you can have it and it can still be worthless, mm -hmm. as opposed to a piece of land or a piece of gold or something like that, where it's such... It's but gold, right, but gold... That's the same deal, right? I mean, yeah. who in the world said gold is valid? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You can't eat it, right? You can't. I, mean, it's, I don't even understand. Like, people are like, oh, I'm hoarding gold. I'm like, that sounds just as unreliable to me as anything else. Right? No, I mean, you, but you're right. It is. It's, I mean, money's funny. It's an idea. Same with a lot of these things. But So maybe a land, land is different because land, you can... Yeah, you can do you can plant crops on it, you can live on it, it can nourish you in the various ways, so that's a little different. Gold, maybe not, right? Yeah. Okay, all right, we have to move on. It's fun to talk about these things. All right, so let's Gray suggests that property, his sort of punchline of his entire article is we shouldn't even talk about property anymore. It's not really a relevant concept in the modern economy. Once you agree that it's a bundle of sticks, it's not really property. What do you mean by that? What is it then? Uh, I think what he means is it's just different every single time depending on the context. Good. So property isn't property, uh, it's just whatever rights are attributed to it. Exactly, right? It's a, it's a mutable, malleable concept that we just use in whatever case to make the situation work for society, right? There's no underlying unified theory the way that Penner would suggest that this right to exclude uh, is an underlying unified theory. And then really what he says is that property is just a different form of regulation, right? We have speed limits that say you can't go over 55 miles an hour. We have other regulations about what you can and can't do. 
property is just another one of those things, right? It just tells you what you can and can't do vis-a-vis -vis other people and other things, and there's no real unifying concept, right? And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's something to think about, and I think that as we go through the course, your opinion of this might change, right? Because we will continue. I mean, a lot of the things we study in this course are the ways that we have sort of altered the underlying core rights. And yet every time we do that, the courts say we're being true to the original theory of property, that there is this unifying property theory. Um, and a big question that's, that's sort of, you know, always asked is whether that really makes a lot of sense and whether we shouldn't just sort of give it up and say, look, it's not really property anymore. What we have is just an extension of contracts or torts or something like that that you, you just sort of add in these applications to land, to money, to stocks, into those other regulatory regimes. Isn't it interesting that even in the Hinman case that is essentially a bundles of rights example, yep. they, they actually go back to um, Justinian. So I know. They're trying to go back to something more exactly. So it seems like there's definitely a conflict. And there is, right? I mean, that's the, what I find so interesting about property is that the modern property regime, I mean, Gray's right, right? It really looks a lot like a bundle of sticks approach because we keep adding and subtracting over and over again. And yet the courts will deny this and deny it and deny it repeatedly. And they always say, well, this is core, right? I mean, we're, we're not going to interfere with the core of property rights. But then you have to ask yourself, is it really, I mean, what's sort of left after we sort of bite at it continually? Trying, the struggle that we have is trying to define our, these rights in a way that is useful, right? And it's got and what we mean by useful is that, you know, is it a, if we define the rights, if we say property is, you know it when you see it, is that a useful way of defining the right to my land? No, right? Because why? Because now neither I nor my neighbor nor anybody else has any idea what the relationships are between what I can do, what they can do, can they come on my land, can they not come on my land, under what circumstances, do I own the air, do I not own the air? I mean, the only way then to answer all these questions is to go and sue people, and, and that gets expensive and takes a long time, and we don't want that, right? We need to define rights in a useful manner so that people know what they can and can't do, what the relationships are between property and other people and other pieces of property, right? And yet at the same time, our definitions have to be flexible and reasonable and careful enough so that we can accommodate all of the things we want, like airplanes, right? And, and that's, that's the struggle, right? You can't be too strict or else you're going to have ridiculous results. But if you're not strict at all, then there is no such thing as a right. You're just sort of constantly arguing 
And we're sort of back to this point where we might get worried that people will either take matters in their own hands or that people will just sort of give up on the idea of owning their own stuff and they'll just start stealing from each other and that would be no good. I was just going to say, kind of what you were saying, that I think that gray makes it too broad and it is a bundle of sticks, but maybe that's too loose and there should be certain, certain sticks that are good. always there and maybe sure like maybe that so the Dolan case that was quoted I thought was interesting in the in the Jacques case yesterday right so this they quoted the Supreme Court case and and Dolan and Dolan says right uses the bundle of sticks metaphor but says the right to exclude is the most important stick in your bundle of sticks right so they use they agree with sort of the basic metaphor but they have a hierarchy of different rights right and I think that is probably really what the reality of modern property law is, right? It's a bundle of sticks approach. Some sticks are a lot more important than others. Uh, the stick that you have of over 500 feet, not important at all, right, in the air. The stick that you have to exclude people from physically invading your land, that's really important. And we're going to uphold that, right? Now, what, how do we know that? I mean, the question is, are, are, have the courts given us enough guidance to know enough about this and uh, to, to uh, structure our behavior? I don't know. And that's something we'll talk about throughout the course. So one, so let's go on to the, the Hendricks versus Stallmaker case. All right. All right. So, Jeff, I'm still with you. All right. All right. Tell us about Hendricks. Okay. Uh, it's a case where uh, the uh, defendant, well, this is a, uh, a case in favor of appeal and um, the uh, defendant below lost. He had installed a uh, water well on his property, um, and it was uh, his neighbors, the Hendricks, they, they were the plaintiffs below, they, um, they uh, wanted to install a septic, a, a septic tank, but there was a health department rule which stated that you couldn't have a, a septic tank within 100 feet of a water well, and their properties were constructed in such a way that they really couldn't put the septic tank or the water well in those particular places, which would have conflicted with the health department's rule. So um, he called up the excuse me the um, the appellant in this case. He called up the, uh, the health department and found out what they were going to do, and he like, kind of beat them to the punch and got the uh, the water well put it on the property before they had a chance to to uh, install the septic or get the license to do so. Good. And so he ended up. Uh, Getting sued by them on the grounds that uh, that was a uh, intentional nuisance. Good. Um, or a, uh, yeah, a uh, nuisance. Right. So Hendricks then sues Stalnaker and says, Your water well on your piece of land is a nuisance. Right? Okay. And what happens? And so um, they also sued for, uh, so uh, they wanted the water well to be declared as a private nuisance. They also wanted the nuisance to be abated and they wanted damages. Right. Um, and the uh, the trial court, uh, well, actually, it was the jury trial, but they yeah. um, uh, uh, declared it to be a, uh, the uh, water well to be a private nuisance. They uh, abated it, and then, but they wouldn't uh, award any damages. So Good. Hendricks. Okay. Right. So Hendricks wins, right, on a jury trial. Jury finds that, in fact, the water well is a nuisance, right? So how in the world can Stallnaker's water well be a nuisance to Hendricks when it's on his land, and he has the right. I mean, he's doing. There's nothing illegal about a water well, right? Because the, the health department's uh, code connects their two properties through the hundred feet regulation, 
So if there's kind of like a boundary that's created between their two properties once anybody installs a water well or a septic tank. Right, so that's true, but what is what did Stallnucker do wrong? To be held liable here. Well, I know in his mind, but as the I mean, he loses. How does the jury find in favor of, of Henrik? Right? He, I mean, nothing's wrong with what he did. He just put a well in. He's allowed to put a well in. Well, I know that on appeal, they uh, declared that it wasn't an unreasonable use of his land. Good, right. I mean, he ultimately does win, right? But this is a different kind of thing. This is not a trespass, right? So this is a, a different creature, right? The claim that Hendricks was making is not a trespass because there is no trespass, right? Did Stalnaker ever invade Hendricks's land? No, right? Did Stalnaker do anything to sort of, you know, throw things onto Hendricks's land? No, right? And yet, Stalnaker was alleged to have created a nuisance. Is it because of the effect that his action had on the Hendrix's land. Exactly. Okay. Exactly, right? So that's that's nuisance. So what is a nuisance? A nuisance is when somebody acts in a way that has an effect on somebody else's A harmful effect. harmful effect on yeah. somebody else's property. Right? Good. And does it require a physical invasion of your property? No. Yeah, usually not, right? So the classic distinction between trespass and nuisance is, is that we usually think of trespass as requiring some sort of physical invasion. Right? Something has to happen. You have to physically invade somebody's property. Nuisance does not require that. Right? Here, there's no physical invasion. Simply putting the water well where Stalnaker did allegedly caused a nuisance. Right? By interfering with Hendrix's use and enjoyment of, of his land. Okay? Alright. So... They're distinct. So, so if you had the choice, right, of trespass or nuisance to sue on, which would you choose? Uh, trespass. Why? Uh, it's, a, it's a more egregious uh, 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 you know, issue. Or more egregious. What does that mean? So if you, you know, so if, if you want, if you're, if you're trying to stop your neighbor from doing something, and you can choose to sue either trespass or nuisance, why would you choose trespass? I think you're right. You would probably choose trespass. Well, why? I think you probably could collect bigger damages and that kind of thing. Might be. That might be possible. Anyone? Exactly. It's a lot easier to win a trespass case because you don't have to inquire into sort of this balancing test between the reasonableness of the use or not. You enter my land, you've trespassed, right? So for that reason, people would usually choose uh, uh, trespass. So in that sense, they're distinct, right? If you can use trespass, you almost always do. The remedies are almost always different as well. We'll talk about that next week uh, as well, okay? Um, all right, so intentional trespass and intentional nuisance is, uh, uh, we already talked about that. So what the court also says something about private versus public nuisance, right? So how about uh, Jaron Wilkinson? Where's Jaron? Yes, all right. Private versus public nuisances. What's their distinction? So private nuisance is easy, which is it's a nuisance against sort of a, pri it's a in against an individual piece of property. Right? What's a public nuisance? If, it, if your nuisance is causing a problem to 
say the public, right? Yes, right? Yeah. So usually what we talk about in public nuisances are things like major pollution sources or something like that that is not just harming a particular piece of property or a particular property owner, but has a much broader effect, right? But here we are talking about a private nuisance, right? Uh, intentional trespass and intentional nuisance we already talked about, and it's an intentional nuisance case because there was no invasion, right? There's no invasion here, and yet what Stalnecker did, did indeed uh, interfere with Hendrix's right to enjoy, right to use and enjoy the land, right? All right, so the court, um, uh, Jaron, says we're going to resolve this by evaluating the reasonableness of the two uses, right? That's the classic statement. I mean, nuisance law is a mess, but the classic statement of how you evaluate nuisance is a balancing of the reasonableness of the competing uses, right? Um, so, how does that work in this case? Well, they said that either use is reasonable, equally reasonable, because both a water well and a septic system are necessary to live in property such as this, and neither property owner has another course of action that would solve that problem. Good. Yeah, they both pretty much had to have their, um, uh, their, their septic tanks and their water wells where they were. They didn't have a lot of different options. And so, how does it work? How come Hendrix loses here? Basically, it seems to boil down to Stone Anchor got there first. Okay. No, I mean, that's, that's one way of, that certainly explains the result, right? Now, the court doesn't say that it does that, right? right. But that might well explain the result. Yeah, they can't find fault with him because he didn't do anything particularly wrong. Good. And had the other party, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Stonehanger Stone water well did Okay, sure. So you, yeah, so the, the first in time principle at least makes some sense in that regard, right? So the court, you know, I mean, so you think the court says it's a tie, so we're going to give it to whoever got there first. I mean, yeah. it sort of looks like that. What do you think? Is that what the court did? Yeah, so it was Stalnecker's second well because his first well was crummy for some. He couldn't keep the water coming out of it, uh, and so he wanted a, a different well. Um, Hendricks, anybody? He just moved, he just moved in, right? He was just moving into the property. So, yeah, so they, they sort of at the same time. I mean, so, I mean, you do raise an interesting point, which is, so let's get clear on the procedural posture here. Who won at trial? Right? Hendricks won. And the trial was a jury trial, right? So a jury found the water well to be a nuisance, right? And note what the appellate court is doing. The appellate court is reversing a jury verdict, right? Now, you, you probably haven't gone too far into these standard review things yet in your other classes, 
But that's a really big thing for an appellate court to do, to overturn a jury verdict. Basically, the standard is they have to convince themselves that no reasonable jury could have found in favor of uh, Hendricks. Right? That the jury below acted, not only got it wrong, but acted unreasonably. That it wasn't even close. Right? So that's a pretty aggressive shift of the result here. Right? So, I mean, one question to ask yourself is, why do you think the jury found the water well to be a nuisance? And are there things in the case that might suggest that? Well, it's because he did it immediately after he knew that they were going to install a septic system. All right. So you think they might have thought that he was playing... Or they read, they read into the whole intentional part of a nuisance because that was an intentional act. Sure. So they might have said, all right, he was trying to be malicious in this sense. He was clearly being intentional, right? There's no question this is an intentional, right? He, he chose where the well went. He did it. He knew that it was going to happen. Um, so it's intentional in that sense. The question that the jury might have, uh, might have uh, used to, as a very important was sort of, was he being malicious in choosing it, right? Uh, choosing that location, speeding up the permitting process and so forth. And you think they might have found that? Yeah. Okay. So, can you, can you ask this to the disagree with Jaren? So, it says that it was with the subject of cause, yeah. but that the septic system, so the removal requirement is not interference along the scene. Right. So, the septic system requires like a septic field to potentially hazardous along the scene. Right. So, that, yeah, what they say is the septic field has a broader sort of scope of exclusion. I think you might be right. That might be that is that is another way of explaining why they did this is that they did weigh, even though they sort of said it was a tie, maybe they didn't really think it was a tie. They said it's close, but really the septic system is more invasive, more potentially destructive. And so instead of doing a first in time, they just chose they went with the less destructive one, which was the water well. Now, of course, that sets aside the fact that in both cases these are sort of necessities for use and enjoyment of the land. So it's not like Hendricks can help it that the septic system requires more space. Well, from a procedural standpoint as well, Hendricks were the ones that brought the suit, so they're the ones that have the burden to prove that the other one was a nuisance. And since it was a tie, it favors the person who didn't have the burden of proof. You would think so, right? So that was that's why it was interesting, of course, that the that Hendricks actually won that at the at the appellate court or at the trial court level. Right? So they were able to actually overcome that burden of proof at the trial court level, ultimately lost on, on appeal, right? All right. But uh, even the appellate court admits that the water well is a substantial interference to the septic tank. Sure. So they, I mean, they apply, they apply the uh, balance test to decide which should stand eventually, but I can see that with the trial court decide properly that it is an interference without considering the balance test. Right. I mean, so I think no one disagrees here that these are both interferences, right? They both interfere with each other's uses of the property. And then the question is, the how do you weigh the balance? The trial court, the, the jury below decided, and we're not entirely sure why, but it very well probably is because they thought that... St that um, Stalnarker was acting maliciously by speeding things up. They decided that whatever he was doing was apparently more 
of a, um, uh, a interference than otherwise, right? Um, and then the appellate court reverses that for reasons that aren't entirely clear, but either a tie or maybe because they thought the septic tank was, was a bigger invasion, right? And those are both fine. Another way to approach it might be to say, which is the more normal use? I mean, these are, there's at least four ways that courts sometimes evaluate these competing nuisance cases, right? One is the invasion approach, right? These are all in the notes after the case, by the way, which is to say we look for what's more invasive, right? And we sort of stretch the meaning of invasive to say which is sort of stretching further out into someone else's property to harm them. So sometimes they might use this, case, this uh, theory for things like nuisance with regard to sound, right? Sort of the sound might travel across properties uh, to cause harm, or they might say that pollution or smells has sort of an invasive quality, and so they would, they would evaluate it on that basis, right? The other thing they, that courts often do, another approach they often take to nuisance is to say, what's the most normal use? Right? Which of these uses is the most normal? And if you're using your land abnormally and harming somebody else's enjoyment of their land, then we're going to find we're more likely to find that you're behaving in a manner that creates a nuisance. Right? And that is that going to work very well here? Well, maybe not, because both of these are pretty much normal uses of the land. You would expect people to do this. Right? A third way is what what. Um, uh, we heard earlier what Jaron said, which is the first-in-time approach, which is, well, when we have competing uses, and it's essentially some sort of a tie, they're both legitimate uses, whoever got there first, right, is the one essentially who gets to keep the uh, activity, and the other one has to give way, right? And a fourth, and a much less used uh, reason, although sometimes you do see this used in some of the cases, is they evaluate who's being sort of more neighborly, right? And if you're being unneighborly, Right? You might be determined to be a nuisance. This is often used, there's actually many places that will find uh, there, you to be causing a nuisance if you put up what's called a spite fence. Right? So if you really hate your neighbor and you put up sort of a giant you know, bright orange fence uh, right at the edge of your property, basically for no other reason than just to annoy your neighbor, that will often be considered a nuisance, not because you're doing anything wrong, but just because you're being a jerk. Right, and that in some cases, uh, you know, they have to show some level of harm. Like, well, I used to be able to sit out on my patio, but now I can't uh, anymore uh, because there's giant orange fence or something like that. Sometimes people shine lights at people's ha other people's houses and stuff. Uh, neighbors are great, right? Uh, and and these things can be called uh, called nuisances because of sort of the the lack of of good neighborly behavior. Okay. All right, I saw a hand. Yes, sir. Um, my question was, so the appeal is about the, just the question of is this a private nuisance, right? Yeah. And in their argument, they're saying that it was a nuisance, but it was less of a nuisance than they would have been. So they're admitting that it was a nuisance, and shouldn't that be enough to sustain the judgment? I would think so. I mean, that's why I'm, I, this case always surprises me because of that, because they do, they agree that the water well is a invade, you know, is a interference with the Hendricks' use of their land because it interferes with their ability to put the septic tank where they want. But then they go on and they say, well, also that the septic tank is an interference with Stallnucker's land. So they agree that there's reciprocal 
um, uh, nuisances involved here, which to me, if it's a tie, then an appellate court should give it to the jury, right? And if the jury, whatever the jury decides is usually what we, but that's what's sort of interesting procedurally about this case is they said it was a tie, and then they went ahead and said, well, but we're going to reverse it anyway, right? Which suggests that there really is something in action here. Maybe really, they really do think this first-in-time theory is critically important. Or maybe, I mean, it doesn't seem like they would consider the difference in harm to be enough to overcome it, because they said it was just slightly different, right? Yes? Sure, but that, that is, that's the punchline of the analysis, not the sort of analysis of the analysis, right? I mean, yes, they conclude ultimately that what Stalnaker did was not unreasonable, which means then it's not a nuisance, right? But um, that just, that's sort of getting to, that's the, the answer to the question, not how they analyzed it. And the question we're trying to work through here is, how did they decide it was, I mean, the, the jury decided it was unreasonable, right? And they agree that, both of these are interfering with each other's right, right? All right, we have to go on. Let's, let's do uh, coasts for a few moments here, right? All right, so there is uh, Professor Coase. Article's The Problem of Social Cost. All right, so let's just go through an example here, right? And I'll just sort of talk you through it. So farming and ranching are inconsistent uses. This is a little bit like the, the Hendricks versus Stallman. Right? They're inconsistent uses, right? If you have farming, uh, then, then it precludes ranching, right? If you have ranching, it's going to damage the crop so it, it harms the farm, right? And so what you can do is you can have sort of this, this set of boxes, right? Where you have, on the, on the one hand, a more valuable use, right? And on the left side here, we have where we offer the entitlement. What I mean by entitlement is who gets the right, right? Who gets the property right? That's what we're talking about in this case, to decide what use uh, is made of the land, right? All right, so here, if farming, right, is the more valuable use, right, if it would make more money for society, just generally more money would be generated for this plot of land to farm it, and the farmer owns the land, then what's going to happen on the land? Farm, right? It's more valuable, and there's an entitlement to the farm. That's the e obvious and easy case, right? All right. So, but what if the rancher owns the land, and yet farming is the more valuable use? What's going to happen? Well, farming is going to happen on the land, right? And the farmer is going to pay, right? And they're going to split. The farmer and the rancher are going to split the revenues, but that will make that will still make them better off. Okay? Anybody with me so far? Anybody not with me? No. Good. All right. All right. So here's another one, right? So farmer has the entitlement. Ranching is more valuable. This is just the reciprocal of before, which is the rancher is going to pay to let the cattle grow, right? So whatever damages are caused by the cattle, the rancher will just go ahead and pay the farmer for that. Okay? All right, and then finally, here, the, um, uh, 
is the reciprocal of, of sort of box one here, which is if ranching is more valuable and the, the rancher has the right, there's not going to be any transaction. Ranching is going to occur. Right? All right. So Coase says it doesn't matter who gets the entitlement. That the uses will be the same either way. Right? So look, it doesn't matter um, uh, who gets the entitlement. The more valuable roots use will end up being what actually happens on the land. Right? So look at the top line of the box there. The farmer has the entitlement. The farmer owns the land. But does that determine what use is made of the land? No, it does not. What determines that? The value of the activity. The higher the value of the activity, that's the one that's going to end up. Okay? Same with ranching. Right? So it doesn't matter whether the rancher has the entitlement or not. Right? Whatever is the more valuable use will end up being the, the, the use of the land. I'm really confused about this. Did Coase mean that in like the societal sense of how much was producing the economy as a whole? Or I don't think that it was split equally between the farmer or the rancher depending on who originally had the land, correct? Right. He doesn't care. He's just talking about aggregate overall wealth, right? And that they will still, so yes, it will matter who makes more money, right, depending on who gets the initial entitlement. But what he says is, as long as the overall value, as long as there's more money generated, then they'll split it up and still be better off. But yes, it will change who makes the sort of lion's share of the money, depending on who we give the entitlement to. But his point is, we shouldn't worry about that, right, because the same use is going to occur anyway, right? All right, so under what conditions? Is this true? Right? So Coase says it doesn't matter who gets the entitlement. Doesn't matter because the same thing's going to happen. That the only thing that matters is what the most valuable use is, what the highest and best use is. Well, it's a clearly defined property, right? Okay. No transaction cost. No transaction cost. That's the punchline, right? So, it, I mean, so it's interesting. Coase, you know, writes this article, wins a Nobel Prize, uh, and this is, he's, you know, he is upset, apparently, all the time because people describe his theory as being the one I just told you, which is the entitlement, entitlement doesn't matter. When he, he always insisted, in fact, his point was what? It's transaction costs, right? The transaction costs matter because what happens if you have transaction costs? Exactly, right? Which means that his theory that entitlements don't matter does not, in fact, hold true, right? And that they will often then have the land not being used for appropriate use or not being used for its best use because of the transaction cost, because you won't be able to reach a deal between the farmer and the rancher, right? And he says that's bad. That's bad for society because now we have a piece of land that's not being used to its fullest extent. And we should try and avoid that as much as we can. Okay? So that is basically the theory here, which is under conditions of no transaction costs, right, you will end up with the most valuable use being used on the land. When you do have transaction costs, now what? Now what matters? The value that you create has to be applied to the transaction costs. 
So you have to add in the transaction costs, right? And so as a practical matter for determining things like, as a judge, who gets the entitlement, why is that important? Right? He, so what Coase thinks is that the fact that there are always going to be transaction costs. I mean, you, you can't live in a world without transaction costs. I mean, you can hope that you might, but you can't. It's not realistic. So in a world with transaction costs, he says we should think about this in terms of how we allocate the entitlement. So what should we do under Coase's view? What should a judge do? Farmers and ranchers come to, come to you, and they're each doing this, this Hendricks versus Stallnecker thing, right? They're saying, you're a nuisance because you're letting your cattle graze. And he's saying, no, you're a nuisance because you have crops that are liable to be trampled by cattle, right? So it's a reciprocal nuisance. They're sort of competing. Both of these are perfectly fine uses, right? And what do you do? What would Coase say? Right, but they can't do that. That's why they're in front of you, the judge. So now what do you do? I mean, if they could make the bargain, they would, right? But the fact that they end up in court suggests that they couldn't make the bargain because of transaction costs, maybe because of poorly defined property rights, whatever it is, they couldn't get there. So now what? So both parties should take a lesser nuisance or whatever is going on um, into Right, but what do you? You have to decide the case. Who are you going to give it to? Farmer or rancher? Um, Coin flip. We know there's transaction costs. I mean, so what is it? What am I? How do I decide? They come to me and they say, "I need a decision. We can't figure this out on our own. Wish we could, we can't." Okay, so what does that mean in terms of who I should give the entitlement to? You should determine what the most valuable use of the land is and give it to give the entitlement to that person. Good, exactly, right? You, you determine what the most valuable use of the land is, give the entitlement to that person, right? And then let them use the land. That is the best option for society, right? And you can assume then by giving it, right, that they, they will then have to, if they want to change the use of the land, there'll be some sort of transaction, right? But if they can't get a transaction done, then you just, you give the entitlement to the highest and best use, the most valuable use, which is the one that would have occurred if they could have contracted, right? And as a judge, you shouldn't matter as much, it shouldn't matter as much to you about who divides up the pie here, you just want to make the pie as big as possible. And the way that you make the pie as big as possible is by giving it to somebody. And you got to give it to the person who has the highest and best use. Okay? Everybody getting that? Right? So this, this is sort of the, the story. And this has been, this is a fundamental um, uh, 
a fundamental idea in property law and actually, frankly, in almost all areas of law. And this is the most cited law article of all time, right here, right? This theory. Why? Because it explains a ton. It tells it has pretty clear directions for how you should make decisions uh, when you have closely competing. So let's go back to Hendricks versus Stallner, right? How would we decide that under Coates? sure how the calculations work out, but you would do something like that. You'd say, all right, well, who's, whose use is more valuable in this case? And I'll give them the entitlement. And to the extent that the parties later want to shift that entitlement, they can pay each other. But I'm going to start with the person with the more valuable use at this point. It's not just that. If you think broader, having the septic tank will prevent other people from putting wells around. So let's say more neighbors, you know, Good. Yeah, perhaps. Of course, there's got to be a septic tank somewhere, right? So as a judge, what you're saying, I want these two to make a deal, right? I want, you know, them to join water wells and septic tanks and share them so they can both enjoy their land well. And, and from Coase's perspective, the best way to do that is to say, all right, I'm going to give it to one of these two players, right? The person who has the highest, most valuable societal use, because in case they can't make a deal... At least we're losing the least amount possible. And then we're going to say, now that it's a clear entitlement, make a deal. Right? And you hope that they make a deal. And they might. They might not. Right? All right. So we are just about done today. But let's go through real quick. There are limits to coast. Right? What are the important limits of coast? One, people have to behave rationally. If your farmers and ranchers don't behave rationally and exchange money, then coast doesn't work. Right? People won't make these transactions, right? Bargaining is difficult. Bargaining is expensive, right? So it is difficult to make the sort of transactions that Coase uh, assumes will occur after you set these entitlements, right? So because of that, we end up with a lot of cases where, in fact, the land, the use of the property isn't its highest and best possible because you're stuck there. There's a picture in the in the book of a little tiny house surrounded by giant developments, right? It would probably be much more valuable for that small piece of land to be developed into a large office building. That would be the highest and best use of the land. Doesn't always happen. Doesn't always happen. The entitlement there is allocated to somebody who's not using it to the highest and best use, and they can't be moved, right? And because of these limits, right? And then people are, you know, they're nutty. People are nutty. They, they do things. This you know, whole field of this, behavioral economics. People overvalue their own property, right? They think that you know, $100 now is worth uh, more than $100 tomorrow and things like that. So you know, they, they do things that are irrational, and because of that, it interferes with their ability to make these transactions, right? All right, so we'll pick that up um, uh, on Monday, right? All right, have a good weekend, and I will see you then. The uh, recording from yesterday is up, and the recording from today will be up shortly as well.